0: Welcome to Tonebenders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and
1: Renee. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado. With me today is Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. Uh, this is episode two, and we had a really great response in episode one, so let's jump right into the comment section.
0: First off, we got comments on the Facebook page, Twitter. We had an overwhelming response people from Scotland, Hungary, Poland, New Zealand, Australia, Italy. Obviously, USA and Canada, since that's where our co-hosts are from. Germany, England, Norway. So we, we got a great response, and we really appreciate it. So if you guys have anything more to tell us, let us know. We really appreciate it. Some of the cool responses that we got were from Colin Hunter. Great first show. Looking forward to many more to come as a small discussion point and perhaps something that could follow up on the Kima session. I was wondering if you guys would be willing to share your thoughts on using the iPad or other touchscreen input device as a controller. If it's something you guys have already done, how did it work out? Are touchscreen gestures something that will become more common in the world of sound design? I guess, Dustin, do you want to take that? I think you're more familiar with that.
2: Yeah, I certainly use my iPad every day for touch control of... Some type of software. Uh, certainly, a lot with Kima. It works very, very well with Kima. Actually, Symbolic Sound has their own iPad application. Plus, there are tons of other third-party things that work with it, like Touch OSC and some stuff from Dolora Software as well. But it's also great for DAW control. The traditional DAW control. NyRink makes their V Control Pro, which is wonderful. Hooks right into Pro Tools or Logic, I believe Nuendo as well. It'll give you control of faders and knobs pretty much looks exactly like you're sitting at the desk. I think that the multi-touch and kind of gestural control is wonderful. It gives you a unique type of control over your sound and gets you back to being more of a musician than uh, an engineer, which I think is really great when you're trying to create something. It lets you play the sound more than just technically manipulate it. So I think that there's probably maybe a feature length segment buried in this question somewhere, because we could go on and on. But yes, I think that tablet control and touch control is a, is a huge, huge thing. I think you'll see more and more of it. I think you'll see the surfaces become larger and larger and more complex uh, as we go. But I love it. It's a huge part of my workflow, and I think a lot of other people as well.
1: Do you, do you have a hardware controller that you use also? like a C24 or a traditional motorized fader kind of controller?
2: Uh, I don't, actually. I've had the uh, Avid Artist series for a while, the mixes and the transports, which I like. Yeah. But I'm actually just about to ditch them and uh, to fund some other toys. But the next purchase, the next large purchase, will be probably a a desk, a traditional desk. I, I don't find that I use it much, to be honest, but I like it when I'm doing a large mix, a film mix, for instance. It's just... Takes my eyes off the computer and puts it back on the screen, which is important.
1: What I found, I'm very fortunate to get to work in front of a C24, and you know, before I had a, a uh, JL Cooper, which was you know, it was using the Huey interface. The C24 is like more built into what Pro Tools does, and so what you were describing a second ago, which is playing it and being an artist more than being a technician. I feel like if you have a hardware controller that. Is, is thoroughly integrated into your DAW, that kind of does the same thing because my whole workflow has changed in the last year. Because I've got a C24 in front of me, now I can spill plugins out onto my faders and do something similar where I can push distortion levels by feel and by touch rather than by um by, uh, by number.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Do you use the desk a lot when you're doing sound design or Constantly. more when you're mixing, really?
1: Constantly, yeah. I'm always always flipping plugins out onto my faders and, uh, and just doing it that way.
2: Cool. I'm such a very particular automation guy when it comes to sound design. I I move things by tenths of a decimal point for no real reason, but uh, (laughs) when I'm mixing, certainly I I definitely am a big fan of the console. Love faders. But when I'm doing straight sound design, I find myself barely ever touching a fader.
1: I think the next step is going to end up being less pictures under glass and maybe some sort of a... um, random access, tactile-type interface. That's probably where it's going to end up going in the future, so you don't have to look at it, so you can close your eyes and feel it. But maybe it still is able to kind of, you know, draw things up Braille-style or whatever Yeah. under your fingers.
0: Another comment we got was, nice podcast, Are you guys getting on iTunes anytime soon? And uh, I guess the answer to that is yes. The first episode, we just wanted to get it up and out there instead of waiting for the process for iTunes. But we've now got that process going, and it will be there very soon. But for now, if you want to subscribe to the show through iTunes, there's instructions on tonebenders.net. If you click on the question mark, that can explain how to do it for now. But within the next couple weeks, it should be up on the iTunes store directory. And then uh, my favorite comment, the comment of the week. The winner. Is from Andrew Spitz, who says, Thanks, guys. I just got a boner on my cock. (laughs) And uh, maybe we'll just leave that at that. Thank you, Andrew. We appreciate your kind words.
1: I think he appreciates us.
0: (laughs) M Taggy says, great work. Apart from the very interesting and inspiring conversation, I enjoyed the superb audio quality of the podcast. Really, there are so many podcasts that I simply can't listen to because there's poor quality. Thanks. I can't wait for the next one. And I guess to that listener, thanks for the compliment. Uh, We're trying to take pride in keeping the quality high. That's right. So those are the comments that we got so far. So once again, continue to give us comments. We really appreciate it. And it's the best way for us to uh, learn how to get the podcast to you guys in a better way. So uh, now we're going to move on to our first feature. This is done by Renee. Do you want to take it from here?
1: So in our first episode, we did origin stories which is a a real kind of basic fundamental thing. And I think one of the other fundamentals is building a field recording kit. If you're a sound designer, you're going to need to have a field recording kit almost always. So this segment is about um, how to do that from scratch. If you call yourself a sound designer, you've probably got a field recording kit. If you want to become one, you'll want to build a kit, and everyone has to start somewhere. This segment is about building a field recording kit from scratch. My philosophy on buying gear is that you'll sometimes need to buy low-end stuff to get into the game, and then later on you'll save up for the primo stuff, and you'll only want to buy it one time. If you buy middle ground gear, you'll end up just replacing it later on with higher-end stuff eventually. So if you skip that step, save up your money, and just go straight for the primo stuff, you'll end up spending less money in the long run. All recording rigs have these five fundamental components a microphone, a preamp, a computer system, a storage system, and a power system. The more complex rigs also have things like suspension, wind protection, cables, mounting hardware, that type of stuff. The simplest rigs contain all five fundamental components in a single package. These are the handheld recorders, things like the Sony PCM-D50 or the Sony PCM-M10, the Zoom H4n, Tascam dr 40 and dr 100 the Roland R-26, and there's a whole host of other handheld recorders out there. It's a big market with lots of options to it. In my opinion, if you've got absolutely nothing, this is where your field recording kit should start because it gets you all the way into the game at the minimal cost. All these handheld recorders have similar characteristics that make them very good at some kind of recordings and pretty poor at other kinds of recordings. The common element is that they all have built-in electric condenser microphones with very wide polar patterns. These electrodes tend to be both a little bright and a little noisy on the quieter sources. The handheld units are very small and very portable. They're self-contained units and the components are custom made to work together. So in many cases, that means that the preamps are tuned to the microphones. They often need wind protection. The electrodes are very susceptible to wind noise. The thing to remember with the handheld recorders is that the computer system is going to get outdated before any other part of your recording rig, and in the handhelds your computer system is physically tied to the rest of your recording rig. These little handhelds are very good at recording moderately loud, diffuse sound sources. Typically anything that's sitting about 70 dB and up is going to be a good candidate to get recorded by these devices. One of the defining characteristics that these guys make with their internal mics is that they hear ambient sounds and reverberations very prominently. This makes them good for recording things like crowds. Vehicle interiors. Moderately loud ambiences. Weather like rain. Weapon and explosion reverberations. And any sound that needs to sound as though it's kind of out in space. Where you want to hear the environment along with the sound as part of the definition of the sound. They're also good for stealth recordings. Here's a recording I made in a poker room. I would have never been able to make this recording with the full-on rig that looked conspicuous. Sean, one, two. But a handheld recorder just looks like a Walkman. It's not a big deal to just sit in a chair in the room, put the recorder on the table and roll, and sit next to it messing with your phone. People don't pay attention to you when that kind of stuff is going on.
2: Two Dwayne, David S. JB, Jimmy, Pat, Mike, and
1: All of those recordings were made with my trusty PCM D50. Now, the characteristics that make them good for recording crowds and ambient sources make them poor at recording other things, things like animals that need to be separated from the environment, quieter ambiences and room tones, spot sources like doors or cars, that type of thing. Bright sources tend to get very harsh very quickly on these type of microphones. And if you're recording voices to be synced with picture, these devices will tend to catch too much reverb to make those recordings useful. So now that you've got a handheld recorder and you're in the game, you can start to upgrade the different component parts. Here's where you're going to want to start to aim high. A good first step is going to be a combination of a preamp and microphones. When you upgrade your preamps, you're going to do it by buying an external mixer. A good analog external mixer will always be useful, no matter how your kit evolves over time. It'll upgrade your sound pretty dramatically from the internal electronics of the handhelds, and it'll offer a bunch of benefits outside of just improving the preamps. External mixers make you more flexible. They allow you to route to multiple devices simultaneously for both recording and monitoring. They also tend to have better headphone amps than the handheld recorders, which is important when you're recording quieter sources. They'll supply way better phantom power than the handheld recorders. Far more stable, and that affects the sound. They will also have far better limiters than the handhelds will. Most handheld recorders have digital limiters that only engage after the audio has been recorded and converted, which is pretty useless. A good analog front-end limiter will actually catch the peak before it gets digitized. The portable mixer market is pretty polarized. There's a bunch of very good stuff and a whole bunch of crap out there. When you're upgrading your preamps, you want to avoid the crap that's aimed at the DSLR guys and the amateur videographers. Stuff like the Juice Links and the Asdens and that type. You're going to want to stick with Sound devices, Fostex, Cooper, the known big-name audio brands are going to give you the best bang for your buck when you start spending real money on those things. With your preamp upgraded, next is going to be your microphones. A shotgun mic is going to make your rig immediately more versatile because a shotgun is going to have the most different characteristic from the built-in mics on the recorder. Here's a test I recorded in a reverberant space using a 416 and the internal mics on an H4n. For this setup, I aligned the two mics exactly together vertically and ran the 416 directly into the H4n using the H4n's preamp. The entire device was recorded on the H4n in four channel mode. I'll have a picture of the setup up on the website for you to check out. This is a 416 about five feet away directly on axis. This is the H4n about five feet away directly on axis. This is a 416 about two feet away directly on axis. This is the H4N, internal mics about two feet away, directly on axis. This is a 416, about two feet away, 45 degrees off axis. This is the H4N, about two feet away, 45 degrees off axis. This is a 416, about two feet away, 90 degrees off axis. This is the H4N, about two feet away, 90 degrees off axis. This is the 416, about 2 feet away, 180 degrees off-axis, directly behind it. This is the H4N, about 2 feet away, 180 degrees off-axis, directly behind it. So what you're hearing is a pretty big difference, especially off-axis. The 416 starts rejecting sounds very quickly, while the H4N sounds about the same no matter where I'm standing. The 416 is also a lot quieter, even using the H4N's preamps. So when you buy a shotgun, your low-end shotguns are going to be the Rode NTG-2 and the Audio Technica 987. Mid-level shotgun is the Rode NTG-3, and your high-end shotguns are the Sennheiser MKH-60 and 416, which I used in the test, the Sankin CS series, the Neumann KMR-81, and the Shep c 5U. Next on your microphone list should be a set of small diaphragm condensers. The small diaphragm mics will have similar characteristics to the built-in mics on the handheld recorder, but they'll be of much higher quality. Mid-range small diaphragm condensers include Line Audio CM3s, Octava MK12s, and Rode NT5s. The high-end ones are the Sheps, DPA, Neumann, and Sanken models. A handheld, a shotgun, and a pair of small diaphragm condensers will cover all your fundamentals. From there, you can branch out into the weird stuff. Contact mics, hydrophones, electrostatic mics, stethoscopes, lav mics, $2 mics, speaker mics, that type of stuff. All of these mics will be far less linear than what you have in your kit. They'll also tend to not be very expensive. They're good for lateral recording, for supplemental recording, for experimentation. When you're using things like contact mics and hydrophones, be sure to match your impedances on the way in. Once your rig is to this point, you're going to be in a very good spot. Further down the rabbit hole are things like wind protection, multi-channel capabilities, higher-end stealth rigs, that type of thing. But at that point, you may start to cross a threshold where it makes more sense to rent than to buy customize your rig to your needs, and do your best not to buy gear more than once. So there you have it. Get the game, and then don't buy your gear
2: twice. Thanks, Renee. That was wonderful. Cool, man. So what is what is your rig at the moment?
1: Right now I have a PCM M10, a PCM D50, two sound devices, mix that I use for the front ends of that. I have uh, four Line Audio CM3s, uh, Rode NTG2, I have the Jez Riley French uh, contact mics. I have his electrostatic mic also, which is awesome. I have a stethoscope mic that I use. I have a couple of uh, Rode NT5s. Yeah, my next step is gonna be to, to massively upgrade my shotgun, that's gonna be the big thing. And I wanna get one of those Rode lav mics also.
0: Wow, that's, uh, that's a little more elaborate than you were describing in your piece Well, <laughs> to start with. Obviously you've been doing it for a while, so that makes perfect
1: sense. And it's I'm in a unique situation too because, you know, Where I work, we have a huge rental department with all of the high-end gear. So it's like I can, as long as stuff isn't rented out, go and grab the 788T and the Shep's MS rig and, and, uh, you know, a couple of 416s or whatever and just go shoot whatever I need to shoot. So it's similar to the situation I was talking about before. If I didn't have access to the gear that I have access to, I probably still wouldn't own eight channels of recording and 100 microphones. I would probably just rent those out as needed for, you know, gun shoots, vehicle records, those type of things. Because you just don't use them enough for it to be worth the expense of owning, usually.
0: Provided you live in a spot that has the availability to rent that stuff.
1: True that, yeah. If you're out in Oklahoma, you, you might have to own it. So one thing that you didn't mention
0: about one of the good things when you upgrade your portable recorder with external preamps is that when you take the load of the Phantom Power off of the batteries in the portable recorder you suddenly get way longer recording time out of your portable recorder because you're splitting the power loads in between the batteries of the preamp and the batteries of the uh, recorder. And I find there are some portable recorders, like you mentioned, the Sony
1: D50. The, the batteries in that thing seem to
0: last forever.
1: Yeah, that's that's the big thing that I that I really, really like on both of those Sony devices is those batteries will last for days. You can use them as plant mics. Like I literally took my PCM D50 and put it on the roof during a soccer game and got the whole match and was like, not worried about it.
0: Yeah, but you couldn't do that with the Zoom, yeah. But you can get a lot more time once you add an external preamp. The batteries start lasting quite a bit longer, so that's another great advantage if you're trying to do a longer recording session with a portable recorder.
2: Yep. Renee, what's your opinion of the M10 versus the D50?
1: Sure, the PCM D50 is Sony's second handheld device that they put out. Um, It's got swiveling uh, top-mounted mics, uh, it's got four, both the PCM-D50 and the M10. The M10 is kind of the lower-end model of the of the D50. Both of them have 4 gigs of internal storage and uh, have expandable storage on top of that. They both have ridiculously long battery life. The D50 requires wind protection, even indoors, really, for you to use it because those electrodes are just so crazy sensitive to wind noise. The M10 doesn't. Um, they're Omni mics, and they're sitting under wind protection. I ran some tests when I got my M10 where I was just out in the world And uh, they're pretty resistant to normal to moderate wind, which is nice. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's awesome.
0: I only have the D50, so.
1: Yeah, it's like, well, and the other thing the N10 does that the D50 doesn't is it'll roll over from the built-in memory to the memory stick memory. So you can start with your 4 gigs internal, and 4 gigs will get you at 24-bit 96K, something like two and a half hours, something like that. Um, which is not quite enough for an entire sporting event, and I use these a lot at sporting events. and so with the M10, you can plug in extra storage and it'll actually roll over automatically with regards to where it's recording the file. The D50 doesn't do that. I think the m10's a better bit bucket. If you have external mics and you have and you have a um, and you have a mixer, the M10 is a really, really great kind of bit bucket because when you plug in line in, it also bypasses the preamp. the D50 doesn't, but the d50's a better. All in one unit. Like, if you're not using external mics, the D50 is a better recorder than the M10 is with the built in mics. What are you using for wind protection with the D50? My wife made an awesome little multicolored fuzzy that kicks ass. That's what I use. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
0: It's got to be multicolored or it doesn't work as well.
1: It's, it's like my, my, my cell phone is filled with photos of my little traveling gnome D50 recording things <laughs> with the blue and purple hair.
0: I was amazed in your little test that actually how good the H4n sounded at 180 degrees off axis. Yeah. Like it's obviously not perfect, but it wasn't horrible, which I was expecting.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a lot of what you get, though, is you just get a big wide pattern, you know, and it's just it really is going to catch a whole lot of reflections. And so, you know, like I said in the segment, you really have to want that um, in order to choose that, that recording setup as your, as your setup.
0: Yeah, for sure. It obviously has a
1: lot of negatives with that much coverage, reverbs and such, in the space that you're recording in. The thing about all the handhelds is it's the mics that are noisy. It's not the preamps. The H4N's preamp with the 416 on it is pretty freaking good. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's the mics that, that give you all the noise, and that's true on the D50 and all the others, too. Those electric condenser microphones are just noisy.
2: Yeah. So, Renee, if you had to make a recommendation for uh, some folks just starting in field recording, where would you suggest they start? Is there a particular piece of kit you say, go buy this, you'll be happy?
1: Everyone has different needs, right? And so you can't say go buy this one microphone and it'll record everything that, you would, that you'll that you need to get recorded. It's a matter of what you're gonna focus on initially as far as recording. I mean, are you buying a kit to build a general library or are you trying to specialize in vehicles? Those two different things are gonna lead you to different pieces of kit. So what I'd say is to evaluate the type of sound, spend some time evaluating the type of sounds you're gonna be recording. Customize your kit to that, and then spare no expense on the front end. Get that mixer right. Because the mixer is going to be universal across. The other thing that we should mention
0: is that, like, obviously, this piece was dedicated to the gear. But the gear is only half the equation. Technique is also a major part of the equation. Like, if you can't afford the $15,000 rig with every bell and whistle, you can still get good sounds out there with a $300 recorder. You just got to work with it and figure out its limitations and its advantages and find out the best ways to use it. And you can get usable sounds. They won't be quite as full of depth and warmth, but they'll definitely be usable. And the more you use it, the more you'll know where the strengths and weaknesses are, are of the equipment that you do choose to buy. And you can find ways to make it work and get some great stuff out of it regardless.
2: Yep. Yeah, That's an excellent point in general. I think in sound, we have a tendency to fall down the gear-lust hole rather quickly. Yeah. But there's a lot you can do with very cheap gear. I mean, I think the playing field has been leveled to a large degree thanks to technology. So if you're not getting what you want out of your gear, maybe spend a little more time trying before you go and buy something else.
1: I mean, I think you can get a really great sounding rig for
2: about a grand, you know? Absolutely. That covers a lot of ground. And Renee, do you have any qualms about buying secondhand?
1: No, I love buying secondhand. Both of my mixers are secondhand. Uh, I'm a a big fan of sniping stuff down on eBay. Um, So am I. Yeah, so am I. I have five different sound devices products, and I've never
0: bought anything from sound devices. It's all from eBay and used and Craigslist and such. So, yeah, the used market is really great because you can get high-quality stuff at a cheaper price.
1: Yep. Of my whole rig, I think I bought the contact mics and the D50 new. And the and the and the and the line audio mics. Everything else is used. Yeah. What do you think about the
0: line audio mics? Obviously, you like them. I don't. I love them. I don't hear a lot of talk about them in other circles, but th- those who have them seem to love them.
1: You know, there's a thread on Gearslutz um, that we can put in the show notes where a bunch of people have been doing recordings and shootouts with the line audio mics against the Sheps mics and against the Octavas and against the Josephsons, and um, man, they just they sound really good. I think what the line audio mics do really well. Is they catch the mid range in a in a ear pleasing way, the the reason the NT5s feel a little cheap to me, the Rode NT5s, is because they don't seem to catch the mid range just right. The NT5s are quieter um, and brighter than the Shep's mics, but that does not make them better. Um, the Shep's mics are a little noisier and a little darker than the Rode NT5s, and the and the Line Audio CM3 is kind of go more along the line of those Sheps mics. The uh, the CM3s don't track transients as fast as uh, the Sheps and the NT5s do, and I find that to be pleasing. I kind of like a little bit of built-in compression into the mic. Where are they made? There's a guy in Sweden in his garage. And they're Swedish, okay. Um, I think the capsules are Japanese, and he, uh, he, he gets the capsules in and puts them against a pretty hardcore spec test, and rejects everything that doesn't meet his spec and then he builds them from there and they're just they're ridiculously small they're so tiny and they weigh nothing and it's really hard to take them seriously when you're holding them in your hand but when you listen to the recordings you're like holy cow that's awesome right on yeah i'm a big fan uh so with that said one of the best things that you can do with a recording kit is go out and record things Uh, so (laughs) that's a pretty good thing to do with a recording kit, (laughs) right? You could just mount it on the wall, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that's, uh, that's easiest for people to kind of get access to is, is animals and it's, it's both easy to get access to and really difficult to do well. Uh, so Tim, do you have a segment on that?
0: Yeah, this is a segment that I did just talking about both the fun and the hair pulling madness that results from trying to record various animals out in the wild. So, uh, here's the piece. (laughs) W.C. Fields once laid forth the famous chestnut never work with children or animals. He was of course referring to acting and performing. The statement also rings true when it comes to field recording. I guess children are not as bad, but recording animals is not easy. In fact, it can be amongst the most challenging projects out there. It can be dangerous, time-consuming, frustrating, technically difficult, and even boring. And sometimes, all of those things at the same time. Different animals require different approaches. Most large animals are recorded in captivity out of necessity. Otherwise, getting a microphone up nice and close on a roaring lion is a bit of a suicide mission. I do not have much experience with recording large captive animals. I'm sure they have their own unique difficulties with simply getting permission to get near the animals being at the top of the list. Recording animals in the wild is especially difficult. Getting animals in their own environment is damn near impossible. The recorder has to hunker down and become part of the surroundings before the animal will get close enough to record. Normally this involves being eaten alive by mosquitoes. I really hate that part. When you first think of recording wild creatures, I'm sure lions, tigers, bears, or any other large animal on four legs comes immediately to mind. But sound design world also needs lots of small creatures that are not so immediately obvious. I have recorded lots of wildlife over the years, but the sound I've used the most is easily this recording of a single cricket chirping away. It took hours to get this recording. At first, the whole area was alive with a chorus that seemed like hundreds or thousands of crickets. But as the night wore on, the massive chorus slowly died down, getting smaller and smaller, until this one little guy was the only one left with an earshot, still chirping away. Luckily, he was nearby where I was set up, and I was able to get this pristine recording of a single, solitary cricket. I've used it as an element to build ambiences in lots of projects since. When I recorded the cricket, the reason I was camped out with my gear in the middle of the night was actually to record loons. The cricket was just a happy accident. The loons I was after have a call or vocalization that is an iconic nature sound in the area of Canada where I live. But they are fairly hard to record cleanly. The lakes loons call home are actually quite loud environments, with the breeze rustling through the trees and waves lapping against the shore and the aforementioned crickets chirping away. So recording a bird out in the middle of a lake as a standalone effect is tricky. You have to wait until the perfect day arrives, with no breeze, calm waters, to minimize the noisy surroundings. Then you have to hope that the loons are talkative that night. There's not much you can do to entice them, other than trying out fake loon calls, which end up being pretty pathetic. As you can hear in the background, I was lucky that I found good conditions one night, and I was able to get some good recordings. This was the third night in a row that I was out trying to get the loons, with the first two nights turning up nothing that was usable. But on the third night, out of nowhere, they just started calling out. There are some creatures that you can lure towards the microphone with bits of food. This is a great technique as long as the animals don't mistake the furry on the microphone windscreen as another dangerous animal. I've had really good luck with this technique recording birds, insects, rodents, and even fish. Once using a piece of bread as bait, I was able to record the tiny sounds of hundreds of minnows feverishly swimming around the hydrophone. It took about an hour for the fish to trust or go near the hydrophone, but after a few came close and were not harmed, within minutes there were hundreds of little fish nibbling away at the bread. Rodents are especially easy to lure with food, as they are around humans more often than most creatures so they are less afraid of approaching a stack of food beside a microphone. I've grabbed recordings of squirrels and mice, but by far the best performers in front of the mic in my neck of the woods are chipmunks. They'll just walk right up to the food, sniff the mic close, and then start chirping and talking away. I was even able to do an impromptu Foley session with the chipmunks by putting a contact mic on the deck that they are running around on. Chipmunks are actually easier to work with than many actors I've encountered over the years. Every once in a while, you can get lucky and come across a creature that seeks you out. Some animals will come after you when you enter their territory. In the case of a bear, this is a very, very bad thing. But for aggressive birds, it can be a fantastic recording opportunity. I was recording in Iceland when I stumbled upon the breeding ground of some arctic terns. These little birds attacked in waves while dive-bombing at my head. I found that I could use the microphone as a defense and hold it over my head and they would attack the mic instead of me. As a result, I got some absolutely fantastic bird vocalizations. Like a professional voiceover actor, they were very diligent to get right up tight on the mic when they cawed. A staple of Hollywood films is the family pet. The family pet is frequently used as a shorthand to quickly represent the perfect dream life. When a film starts by showing you a family with a couple of kids and a dog and a cat running around, you are normally being told that the family is happy and stable. And in most cases, the plot of the rest of the film will be about something disrupting that happiness. So a sound editor will need a good range of barks and meows to cover the spectrum from when the animals are happy and content all the way to when they are miserable and angry as the plot thickens around their owners. Recording domestic animals is both a dream come true and really tricky. Unlike wild animals, dogs and cats are easy to wrangle, approach, and keep the mic close to. On the other hand, being around humans is so second nature to them that they are just as likely to go to sleep as they are to perform. If you have a budget, you can book a trained talking animal and get some great results. But if you are working with a typical dog or cat, you're in for a challenge. Some good techniques are to try and get them going in a game of call and response. Having lots of treats nearby is a must, both as a reward and to taunt them to induce barking. Here is the real trick, though. Domestic animals cannot be faked in post-production. If you have a movie with a roaring bobcat, you can build roars out of sounds from similar animals, adding in human vocalizations, even some organic non-animal sounds, to build a frightful character. Dogs and cats play such a large role in our daily lives that most viewers are very aware of what each breed should sound like, so a faked or overly manipulated effect will stick out like a sore thumb. This makes the recording phase especially important. One way is to get the animal into a studio. This is great in terms of getting a clean sound in an acoustically treated environment. The downside is that many animals behave strangely in new surroundings that they are not used to. I've had better luck bringing the gear to the animal's home turf. I recently worked on an animated series that had a cat as a regular character, so I went out to record some cat vocalizations at the home of a friend of mine and his surly cat. I was able to get a lot of great performances from simply following the cat around the house. The cat quickly got used to having a microphone a few inches away, and with some creative prodding the two of us ended having a conversation, lasting a few minutes and producing a whole bunch of clips that were later used in the sound edits for the series. This is Cringer. Hey, cringer. Hey, cringer. Cringer. In terms of gear, mic selection can be key. In the wild, directional mics can separate animal sounds from the surrounding natural noise. Parabolic microphones have been put to great use in wildlife recordings, although I personally have no experience with them in that context. Sometimes the only way to get a certain sound is to use a mic that is physically very small. I was able to record the inside of a wasp nest by using a DPA4060 miniature condenser. If the mic was not so small, I would never have been able to get that sound. Although mic selection is important, I find having options to adjust on the fly to be the most important. I have used shotguns, hydrophones, contact mics, portable recorders, small condensers, and boundary mics for animal recordings, and I'm sure there were cases where other options were wished for. But when it comes to recording creatures and animals, really the main thing you need is time, because any session with an animal subject is most likely going to take up all of your patience. Really nice stuff, man. I'd just like to say that no animals were harmed during the recording of that segment. I don't have the Humane Society's stamp of approval, so we can't put that on the end of the podcast. I actually did some research into how you get the Humane Society, like at the end of films when you see the Humane Society's logo and it says no animals were harmed. Yeah, Obviously, we're not shooting a film here, but it's a pretty intense process that you got to go through. You have to have a vet on set at all times. You have to have someone go through everything the animal's going to do the day before. But uh, all in all, animals, they're really fun to work with, but they're, they can be maddening as well.
1: I think the one recurring theme that you had the whole time was how much patience it requires. Exactly. That's been my experience, too. I mean, you really have to be willing to dedicate a whole day or a whole afternoon to getting a very small amount of sounds out of anything. Exactly.
2: And there's a certain amount of research, either up front or via someone else, to understand... Just like when you're trying to work with a microphone, how can you get the best out of that creature that you're trying to record? You know, What will they respond to? What won't they respond to? So probably in the instance of your friend's cat, just talking with your friend to see what kind of approach is going to elicit the type of response that you're looking for.
0: Exactly. It's a, it's a mixture of experience and uh, just flying by the seat of your pants. Because you might know that this type of microphone and technique is going to record the best sound. But that doesn't mean that the animal's going to agree with you. So sometimes sticking a mic right in front of the animal's face works great. Other times you have to put the mic there, leave it, and let the animal go to the mic on its own and figure out when it wants to talk. So yeah, as you were saying, Renee, it's all about patience. I recorded hummingbird wings, mm-hmm. and that nearly murdered me because I was eaten alive by mosquitoes while I was just sitting in the woods with my little hummingbird feeder trap and the microphones all around it. But then when they finally started coming, it was the coolest sound. It, like Hummingbirds sound like old analog synthesizers. Like They, they have this great, amazing sound to them. And it was something that I couldn't find in any libraries or anything like that. And it was just this really, really fulfilling recording. And uh, so when, when it does work, it's almost like the, the sweeter fruit is higher up the tree or whatever that phrase is. Like if it's harder to get, <laughs> once you've got it, you, you actually get a great sense of accomplishment. Where if you just want to go record train passes, all you got to do is get to the tracks and throw up a mic. You know, you, you get them, but it wasn't the chase, wasn't there, you know, the thrill of the chase.
1: So you actually set up bait for the hummingbirds. You, you baited a rig and, and got the hummingbirds yeah, to there's come to it. A- the-
0: hummingbirds, they get their food from flowers. So you can uh, get this liquid. You can make it yourself with sugar and such, but you can also just buy it at a hardware store. And uh, you put it in a little feeder and they fly right up to it and stick their beaks through this hole. And they float while they suck the liquid through this hole. And you can, uh, they just sit there for as long as they feel safe drinking away. And I was able to rig a bunch of mics around it. I think that the the windscreens on the mics made them think that there was other, anim- like they thought they were animals of some sort because they were furry. So it took a, quite a while for them to get comfortable. But once one or two went and took a sip, then they just started coming out of nowhere. And I was getting all these amazing uh, hummingbird wings. But then you have the problem of you're in a forest. So there's wind blowing through the leaves and there was a lake with waves rolling in a, a half a kilometer away that came into the recordings at times and other bird chirps. So even when they're there, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a useful recording as a standalone sound effect, which for that, like you, it wasn't an ambient sound effect when you have a microphone two inches from hummingbird wings. So I recorded lots that it was just basically unusable because the wind was going through the leaves so loud at the time. But as I say, the few chunks that you do get out of the, like, seven hours you were recording, they're, they're dynamite.
1: Yeah, I find that's, that's always the tricky compromise is wind protection versus animals freaking out about furry things. Because <laughs> you almost always have to be outside. Like, it's very rare to find a good animal recording inside. Mm-hmm. You have to be outside. That means you need wind protection. But you have to either really spend a lot of time getting the animals acclimated to the big fuzzy thing right by their faces... Or not use a fuzzy thing, and then you got wind noise. And then you got wind noise.
2: <laughs> Tim, what's the most difficult recording you've ever done? Animals.
0: Uh, the most difficult recording—the loons that I talked about. Yeah, dude, those loons were awesome.
2: They were awesome.
0: The loons are so like it, for the area of Canada where I live. The loon is kind of the iconic sound for nature. They're here in the summer, and any radio ad or TV ad that's talking about cottage weekends or like the beer ads on the long weekends in Canada, they all have loon sounds in them, but they're so hard to record. It's like the same six loon sounds in every commercial because you can't go out in a boat, a boat there. I'm Canadian. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you can't go out into the lake to record them because they won't go anywhere near where you are. They'll constantly stay away from you. So you have to get them from the shore But then they're on a lake, so you got waves rolling in from the shore, you've got the trees blowing in the wind. I decided that I was going to get some loons, because I was tired of hearing the same couple sounds and everything. And uh, as it said in the piece, it took three different nights, but then one night at about 2 a.m., suddenly the wind just died. And at that moment, the loons started just yelling at each other. There's two loons on separate sides of this small lake uh, calling out to each other. So you're getting this great stereo spread as well of the loons. uh. That night was so frustrating because the night before, the loons were going nuts all night, but it was crazy windy. Basically, all you hear is static and white noise of the leaves and the trees and with this distant... in the background that it was... Basically, an unusable sound. But uh, once I finally got them, they're really great sounding birds. And they also, because they're out in the middle of a lake, they have an awesome haunting echo that reverberates around the lake. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they can be used, as I say, uh, to represent summer, which is kind of what they do in my neck of the woods. But they also can be used in uh, projects as an eerie sound because they have this kind of uh, ghost-like haunting echo after them. Uh, so it's a really useful sound, for me at least. Yeah, it's beautiful.
2: It's absolutely beautiful.
1: The Loon recording is the one where you really incorporated the space into it, whereas with the other ones, you were trying to uh, remove the animals from the space that they were in. Yeah, there was a bit of that for sure.
0: The Loon's, you don't have a
1: choice. It would be
0: lovely to get a Loon in a recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it wouldn't be, because it would take away the amazing reverb of the lake and the environment so. like that's
1: exactly it that's the that's our human perception of what a loon sounds like because a loon's not going to come up to you and and loon at you,
2: um, loon at you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the scientific but a term dog will that. come up to
1: you and bark at you you know um for sure and so so our our perception of what a loon sounds like is always drenched in reverb because that's the only time that they do it is from very far away for sure um i got to record a camel a while back and uh he was very unhappy with the uh, the microphone on his face, and his, his poor trainer, you know he was, he was like, "Yeah, this camel makes all kinds of noise, and he had to really kind of sit and kind of work with him a little bit And camels are the nastiest animals Camels just have big, gigantic, snotty mouths. <laughs> Sounds like they, it. <laughs> they smell exactly like they sound. <laughs> that is a terrifying sound, actually.
0: <laughs> Have you been able to use that in anything?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you, I mean, you could take a camel and really just kind of you know, get it way down there. And he sounds pretty wild. Yeah, that's great. I got bit in the back by
0: a horse once while recording horses, which was not fun. Because <laughs> uh, horses can bite extremely hard. I've never even thought about horses biting people because I'm not near them very often. I'll tell you, I got out of the range of that horse really quick once he bit me.
1: Yeah. Horses are big, strong animals, and they really are skitzy. They really need to be um, calmed down.
0: I wasn't even recording the horse. He had a donkey buddy And I was trying to record his buddy, the donkey, beside him, and then the horse was like, No, that's my friend, not yours. Chomp.
1: Uh, So, gear wise, what do you usually take when you're going out to record a small animal? It's a combination of experience versus rolling with it. So, depending on the
0: animal, obviously a shotgun would be ideal if you can do it, but sometimes you can't. I just try to bring options. So, the portable recorder is good because it's small, and I think the animals don't find it as intimidating as a giant windscreen on the end of a boom pole being swung at them if you can just kind of put a portable recorder on the ground and then some food in front of it I find that the animals are uh, less hesitant to approach but with domestic animals I definitely you just get a boom pole and just get the mic right in there and they'll either retreat or react so as I say options are what I think is your best bet. Now we're going to do a little segment covering some news that's happened in the sound edit and audio post world. Dustin, do you want to take that? Sure.
2: Thanks, Tim. Uh, So just a couple things that have been going on in our community. One big thing is the Pro Tools native Thunderbolt option is out. So this is a little Thunderbolt device where you can run Pro Tools HD. Uh, We haven't tested it yet, but it looks pretty sweet. I think you would be able to run your full HD rig off of a laptop, be completely portable. So that's kind of nice. Maybe... Avid, you want to send us one? We'll test it. Feel free. (laughs) Another thing is, which is a huge deal for us, uh, not directly related to sound, but certainly this has a huge impact on the community at large, is the digital domain bankruptcy issue happening in Port St. Lucie, Florida. They have laid off around 300 people. They've declared bankruptcy. They're closing their shop down there. And this is a big deal, I think, simply because it speaks to The idea of location, and if this happened maybe in Los Angeles, obviously it's a big deal, but hey, those animators can maybe go down the street and work somewhere else. But in Port St. Lucie, you don't exactly have a lot of options. So all of these people who relocated themselves and their families are now out of work. And where do they go? And what do they do? And of course, these these shops are doing things that then us post-audio folks get to work on. So... It's it's quite an interesting time. There's a glut of available animators out there. So if you're a shop looking for some freelance help, now's a good time to reach out and help these folks out. Another big thing for us directly related to us is Sony has finally, after many, many years of hooting and hollering, released SoundForge 1.0 for Mac. Now, if you're a PC user, you may have used this in the past. I know I have, and I was a huge huge fan. And it was one of the biggest bummers when I switched to the Mac platform that I lost this application. And it's finally back. So it is a 1.0 release. It's available now from Sony's website. I haven't tested it. Have you guys had a chance to play with it yet? I haven't, but we plan on getting it in here pretty soon. Cool.
0: I also have not launched it yet, but Twitter's been a buzz that it's got quite a few bugs currently. No doubt. So uh, I'm thinking
2: I might wait for 1.1 to come out. I know one big thing is that it's 64-bit plug-in only and Lion only, so 10.7 and above, which is a huge thing for me since my rigs tend to lag a few OS versions behind. I'm still 10.6.8 and probably will be stuck there for a while. So I don't know that SoundForge will be for me.
1: What have you been using in the interim?
2: I am a huge fan of Wave Editor from Audio File Engineering. It's cheap, uh, about $65, I believe. And mm-hmm. it's wonderful. They're, it's a layered approach, so similar to Photoshop, if you've ever used that. So you can affect your audio in layers, turn on and off those effects in layers, then flatten your image, or in this case, your audio file, and export in a myriad of formats. But it's very, very lightweight. It's very, very easy to do the types of things that I need to do with it. And the support is wonderful. Small little company. I think they're great. They make a whole suite of products that I just adore. I think everything they do is pretty great. That's cool. And they are in the beta process of their new version. Right now, Wave Editor is at 1.5, and they're about to release 2.0 with a rename. They're going to call it Triumph. And I've been beta testing it, and it's pretty nice. So I'm not sure exactly what... Wave Editor is about to be called Triumph? It's true. That's kind of a weird uh, shift of gears It it is. It's a bit of a different application, really. They've, They've redone quite a bit of it, but... I'm, I'm liking it. I'm finding it to be quite nice, although it is also 10.7 and above only. So right. those of us who are Snow Leopard folks, I feel like the, the writing's on the wall that we may be forced to upgrade soon. Technology's marching on. I know. Which is, <laughs> I always hate that because my rig is finally perfectly stable, and I just know as soon as I upgrade, it's going to be another two months of fighting. <laughs>
0: yeah it's a constant battle and when you get that your system stable it's so
2: awesome (laughs) and you don't want to mess with it it is but you got it it's a good feeling are you guys both running lion i am yeah no i'm not i'm still at leopard as well it's not leopard renee are you running lion on your main rig
1: yes all the the rigs with us are, are online any problems no, it's actually, it's really stable. It's in it's in real good shape. We're running the latest OS and the latest Pro Tools and the latest, you know, we try and stay pretty tight on on what the latest stuff is with regards to our staples. Sometimes it's tricky because they, uh, they, they'll they be buggy, but for the most part, we like to really stay up with where the software's at because we don't want to fall behind and then have to upgrade the whole facility in a big chunk later on.
0: Sure. Yeah, there's definitely two philosophies on how to tackle that and... Uh, I never know which one's right, because <laughs> I, I, I have worked at a place that was like two days after something came out, everything was updated and ready to go, and probably more than 50% of the time, you realize, oh, now this doesn't work, or there's a bug in this, and you got to work find all these workarounds, and then I've worked at places that are still working on Pro Tool 7, and uh, you know everything works perfectly, don't mess with it let's move on. Yeah, there's two ways to handle it. And I guess there's probably the medium ground is where you should try and fall in. But it's good to hear, Renee that you're trying to stay leading edge and it's working out for you guys. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, we're usually, we lag about a month behind or so. Basically, if there's a new OS out or a new Pro Tools out, the moment everything that we use regularly is compatible, that's when we upgrade everything. So if an OS comes out, we got to wait until... Pro Tools is compatible, and Soundminer is compatible, and Rx is compatible, and our, um, our file man- managing system is compatible. And once all those things are compatible, and those companies usually handle that pretty quickly, but once it's all compatible and, and certified, then psh, up we go, you know?
2: Yeah, I, tend to, I tend to upgrade based on features. As soon as there's a feature that I need, or as soon as there's a huge bug that's been fixed that I uh, can't wait for, then I'll move but if it's simply just an upgrade for upgrade's sake, then I tend to pass it. So it seems like I may be in that, finally entering that phase of I have to upgrade to get the features I want. So yep. I, I think my move to, well, I guess now it would be Mountain Lion. My move to Mountain Lion is imminent.
0: I see a feature story coming up.
2: <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> and maybe one final bit of news, which is a big one and maybe... I don't know who read this story, but uh, Sound 1 in New York City has closed its doors, which is a huge deal. That was yeah, that's one of, a huge blow to New York. It was one of the premier houses in the country, really, post houses, audio post houses in the country. They did a lot of work out of that, out of that shop, and uh, certainly our thoughts are with all the people who no longer work at Sound 1, and hopefully they uh, live long and prosper somewhere else.
1: Yeah, between Howard Schwartz and, New- and, and Sound One, New York's really taken some, some hits recently, and it's, it's a shame, and a lot of it, I think, is real estate price-driven.
2: Absolutely, it's incredibly complicated to run a audio post facility. It's a high investment and oftentimes low yield business. It's, yep. it's difficult, it's very, very difficult. Never remiss to say it's a tough time to do what we do. It really is, as the same time as there's never been more opportunities for people to create and share sounds it's also become harder and harder to really carve out a niche and make a living at this. I find myself very, very blessed every day that I get to do this and still do this.
1: Can't ever take it for granted.
2: No, no, not at all. Especially when you see someone like Sound One closing their doors. I mean, whoever thought that?
1: Yeah, especially the last few years of movies they put out and forever back into their history. I mean, it's just such a storied facility.
2: Yeah, beautiful facility Just the Too. building
1: they're
0: in, the Brill
2: Building, yeah. So much history. There's books and books and books written just about what's happened in that building. Do you know why they closed? Do you know what the backstory is? Is it simply real estate costs? Uh, or? Skimming the surface version that I understand is that
0: their ownership company, which I believe also owns Todd, A.O. and Sound Deluxe, yep. uh, was bought by a holdings firm that seems to be as much interested in getting their stocks up as doing quality sound and i think it came down to that building's rent isn't exactly uh free yeah and so i i think technically they haven't closed shop they've put operations on hold oh really okay So I guess maybe there's a chance that they start up somewhere else or that they restructure and figure out a way to continue there. But from what I understand, it wasn't finish this project and then we're closing down. Like people who are halfway through a mix were told to go find somewhere else to finish it. Wow! It was today, everyone's not working anymore. Wow! Again, I have no inside information. That's just what I've uh, heard on the streets, out on the the mean streets.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, anybody who uh, worked, wants to work at Sound One... Give us a ring. Let us know what's happening. We'd love to talk about yep. it.
1: Thanks to everyone who listens and comments on the show. Thanks to Adele for letting us use her voice on our on our bumpers. Thanks Not to, the Adele. Not the Adele.
2: It is a British voice, so we don't <laughs> want people to think that.
1: Yeah, actually, Dustin, what's
2: her last name? It's a South African voice. Adele Young. Oh, South African. What? Thanks
1: to Adele Young for letting us use your voice on our bumpers. Thanks to Tim for editing this podcast. Thanks to John Edward McClove for letting us use his whooshes on episode one. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, everybody.
0: And don't forget to hit us up on Twitter at twitter.com slash the thetonebenders, on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Podcast, and at our homepage, tonebenders.net. Leave a comment. We'll read it on the air. Thanks, guys. Until
1: next time. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at turnbenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the turnbenders or email us at dc, timothy or renee at turnbenders.net.